You're listening to The Last Thing I Saw. I'm your host, Nicholas Rapold. Every year, the True False Film Fest puts together a terrific showcase of nonfiction film. And for several years now, I've headed out to Columbia, Missouri to attend. I went last year, just before the shutdown, but this year I took advantage of their remote edition, which allowed me to stream the movies since I couldn't go in person. But I did know of at least one person who was making the journey, my fellow writer and ScreenSlate managing editor, Cosmo Bjorkenheim. We decided to compare notes on this podcast about our favorite films at True False and the difference between his experience at the festival in person and my virtual one as a teleporter, as the festival put it. You can read more about our adventures on ScreenSlate. After our conversation, I talk with a filmmaker, Theo Anthony, who directed the fascinating essay film All Light Everywhere, which screened in True False this year after premiering at Sundance and also showing in New Director's new films. But first, let's go to my discussion with Cosmo. Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. This is a special festival edition, as I occasionally do. When there's a festival of interest, um, there are plenty of them. There are too many to talk about, but one that I always love talking about is the True False Film Fest in Columbia, Missouri. Uh, except this year, it wasn't just in Columbia, Missouri. It also had a virtual component, well-supplied uh, virtual component. Uh, so for this episode, uh, we're going to have parallel views of the festival. Uh, one from me about the virtual edition, uh, the teleported edition, as they, as they called it. And one from a hardy soul who journeyed there. And so I'm very pleased to have for the first time on the, on the podcast that worked with him editorially uh, at ScreenSlate. Let's welcome Cosmo Bjorkenheim, the managing editor at ScreenSlate. Hi, Nick. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have my inaugural visit on your show. You know, it only leads to fame and fortune, so I, I just hope you're prepared for that. You'll be mobbed when you walk the street, so I just thought it best, you know, to warn you. Fully prepared, but thanks for the caveat. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm really glad that you were game for, for this. I, I mean, I think our, our ambition is two views on, on, on the same festival, as we put it, I guess, uh, IRL versus URL. So you actually uh, traveled there. I'm saying actually, like this is incredible, but these days uh, it, is, it is a little something different. So you journeyed out to the True Pills Film Fest, and this was your, your second time? Yeah, so I know that you've been there many times before, but yeah, this was only my second time there and my first time was last year so that was my only point of comparison this year and um and it was interesting to see what changed between last year and this year because obviously it was a lot all the venues last year obviously as you might expect were indoors uh and quite intimate and this year they were for the most part outdoors and not um in the same area of Columbia as last year. So they had set up four different outdoor venues in uh, a park nearby, Stevens Lake Park, a, a big majestic park in Columbia, the pride of Columbia. So they had four outdoor venues there on various grassy slopes and they had a drive-in and then they still also had two of the, the main indoor venues from from last year, so the two theaters at, at Ragtag Cinema. So I was able to catch a couple of 
screenings at uh, Ragtag and then uh, a number of them at these various outdoor venues. So yeah, it was um, interesting. It was logistically interesting to see and operationally how they navigated this having never done it before. Yeah, I mean, I would have loved to have, have been there. I, I, I'm part of what I love about the festival is how it, how it takes over uh, the town and it has the kind of feel for me. I mean, you know, you know, it might be a bit corny, but I just always feel like it had an old fashioned feel of like a festival or fair taking over a town and everyone you know, knowing it was going on, being eager to go to things. You know, I, I don't know if it was the same level of, of crowds, but that's another thing that always struck me is that you could see movies uh, and, and the theater would be packed, you know. Did you find that it was well attended generally or was it also social distancing in, in, the, in the theater? There was social distancing in the indoor venues. They had they had blocked off every every other row. The outdoor venues, for the most part, were huge. So even if I, it's really hard for me to tell how many people were at each of these screenings. It was it was dark and the spaces were enormous. These big fields. It was quite dispersed, um, even if they were well attended mm. screenings. But yeah, the taking over the town. I mean, I definitely felt that last year because yeah all the action is kind of in a six block stretch of broadway downtown but this year although you could see you know signs of the festival's presence all over the downtown area it was a bit different in that it was um, it had competition uh, because as you know true false usually takes place in march but now they had to push it back to may so the festival was competing on that on that tiny bit of turf in downtown columbia with various graduations i think university of missouri and columbia college which are both colleges in right right there so um basically the downtown area was also overrun with graduating college kids and their families as i said the most of the festival didn't even really take place in downtown as much like it was mostly all in this park only some of the kind of after hours hanging out um, continued to happen in in the bar of Ragtag. Yeah, that's always a, a nice home base. And yeah, I mean, it's, you know, university town and it was always kind of funny to be, you know, staggering out of three or four movies and then run into students staggering around on their, you know, usual late Friday night or late Saturday weekend going around. So, well, I mean, and I mean, for my part, uh, obviously it was a different experience. I mean, the basic idea is that you would be able to somehow have a piece of True False or a piece of Columbia in, in your home. So they sent out, for people attending through the teleported option, they sent out these boxes with assorted items in them. Mostly it was kind of experiential materials, uh, you know, that, for example, they had scents, they had these little bottles of scents that would go with particular movies. They had you know, small artworks. I guess some of them created by uh, grade school children. There are other things I'm, I'm forgetting, but uh, it, it just was a way of kind of bringing the festival handcrafted, uh, you know, locally sourced quality uh, in, in, into your home without feeling that you were being bribed. But in any case, it was, you know, it was a nice gesture. I mean, personally, for me, it wasn't the first festival I had attended virtually. And, and basically the challenge is always the same, which is, sustaining the same focus that you have when you're elsewhere <laughs> uh when you're when you're home and there's other things competing for your attention um and other obligations you know that's the kind of luxury of, of a festival right that you you are physically somewhere else 
So you kind of have to be working overtime to maintain the same focus and the same ability to immerse yourself. So also, since it's over the internet, you're, you're not the whims of lines, but the whims of internet service, which I had my ups and downs with. But that said, um, the curation was kind of streamlined for teleported folk. Um, I don't know if that was partly like rights stuff, um, but at any rate, it, ha- it had a nice effect, which is that it really you know, made it more manageable, I would say. But I don't think we mean to make any grand pronouncement about whether it was successful or not. I mean, I think the best thing is just to talk about the movies. Yeah, I mean, I uh, I do think that we need to emerge from this uh, with a clear victor, you know, in the URL <laughs> versus IRL pitched battle. Um so, yes. you know, I think we need to go toe to toe on on how these experiences <laughs> stack up to each other. <laughs> I am impressed that they did this immersion program where they sent you sense. I mean, that's incredible. I I I have not seen that in any other um, <laughs> virtual festival. It would have been great. I attended quote unquote South by Southwest's virtual version, and uh-huh. yeah, that would have been that would have been much better if they had uh, sent me little. Um, scent sampler vials of you know whatever like what whatever the bathroom and you know it smells like like that's wafting into the theater (laughs) um these were atmospheric scents uh you know there's one for delphine's prayers there's another one for from the wild sea which i actually haven't smelt yet so now live in front of this audience i will smell this scent how is it I mean, I want to say it smells like a wet seal because there are seals in the movie. Um, it has a mar- mar- marine uh, sea breeze quality, I would say. Um, it's quite nice. So, for example, I, I should have been spritzing that all over myself while watching it. Um, the, the movie retained its powers through the wonders of audiovisual uh, qualities, uh, but uh, the scent is there. So, yeah, anyway, I have like five of these bottles. I don't know what I'm going to do with them this point they'll just have to be my madeleines for uh for this mm-hmm. year um as i said it's like the bigger struggle is just trying to watch a movie without any sort of you know urgent phone calls but i i agree at the end of this we will have to determine whether all festivals are raised to the ground or not i think that's a good and and sort of reasonable goal at the risk of scoring an own goal here i, I feel like one thing that does give the URL version a bit of a leg up on the uh, in-person version is you do get to see a lot more uh, movies. I mean, the way that the program was staggered this year, you know, they could, they could only do screenings in the evenings for the most part because it had to be dark. So there was significant overlap between movies and, and screenings and, and successive waves. So I had to miss the last 20 minutes or the first 10 minutes of basically everything I saw to to try to cram mm. as much in as possible. And also because some of these venues are not that easy to get to from each other. There's a shuttle that connects the park to the uh, to Ragtag to downtown. So And the shuttles were uh, seemingly commandeered school buses from other municipalities near Columbia. There was a school bus driver from Boonville, which is another town 30 miles away, who was my shuttle driver for most of the fest. I just happened to get on her shuttle most times. You probably saw, I don't know how many movies you saw. I only saw maybe six movies the entire time I was there. 
But on, on the bright side, I was continuing to crumple my back in a deteriorating posture, hunched over a laptop or fiddling with it, connecting it to the screen. Whereas you were in the great outdoors, breathing the, the fine Midwest air. So, I mean, it might end up coming out, coming out even. I should say like some things I had seen already because um, I think True False is partly like a curatorial feat each year. So, I mean, two prominent pools they draw on are Sundance and IDFA. Uh, so I had seen some stuff um, from there. We should probably talk about movies, but at some point you should talk about the one force majeure obstacle to, to the outdoor movie going. I also should talk about the virtual events, but let's talk about a title. You were describing uh, Petit Samedi. That was, that was kind of your favorite film that you saw? Well, every time somebody's asked me, that one is the first one that pops into my head. So yeah, it was really great. It's this very understated, intimate portrait of a Belgian man in his early 40s who's living with his mom in a small rural village in Belgium and struggling with his heroin addiction. And the entire thing, it's just this really uh, deliberately paced and patient portrait of this guy. And most of it is him having these sort of banal conversations with his mom about how he can't find a job or he doesn't know how to write a, 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 an impressive CV or they'll just sit in, in the living room and reminisce about his childhood. Half of it is that, and the other half is him in just close up on his face talking to a, an unseen therapist. So we sort of see the other side of the story of why he's had this debilitating heroin addiction for the last 25 years. And, and it's him sort of like very patiently trying to work on himself to get over this hurdle in his life. And it's, yeah, I was just um, watching it with bated breath the whole time. It's yeah, I really loved it. It's it can be so hard to get that kind of therapeutic view on a person's uh, person's life. For some reason, it makes me think of, French documentary about war veterans and really getting inside their their head and uh, and also kind of reminds me of a movie a little bit that I saw as well just the intimacy of it uh, and that's Delphine's Prayer which was actually the opening movie of the festival and uh, the director Rosine Bakum she also had a a movie there past edition that was set in hairstylist. Delphine's Prayer is centered on, I guess, a basically a friend of, of the director's who I think also lives in Belgium now that I think about it. So that's yeah. She came from Cameroon and basically escaping all kinds of abuse um, and also just all, all the challenges of uh, making a living as, as a sex worker as well in Cameroon. And uh, raising children, uh, I guess she she makes it out, but through through marrying a European. But the way it's told, it's basically like a monologue. It's her in her apartment, and the camera's just trained on her in a sort of you know cluttered um, bedroom, living room area. And as has to be the case for a movie like this, she's just a great and expressive storyteller and just sort of unafraid to kind of bear her soul and all her fears. And it's also kind of a chance to reframe her life to herself in a, in a way. And I think I heard someone compare it a little bit to Portrait of Jason, just in the sense that it's or someone who's kind of not quite under the gun in front of the camera, but is, is definitely 
that is the proposition. You know, you you sit there in front of the camera and talk about your life, and you know, we, it's not all easy to talk about. But the way it's filmed, basically, she has the ability to kind of self-edit. It seems like, which is kind of interesting. I mean, she basically say, okay, well, that's enough for for today, uh, and Delphine decides it's enough that she can kind of stop, um, and and that's sort of the end of that that take. Uh, although sometimes we'll also just be watching her watch you know, a movie on her laptop or something like that. But they're all, it's all these like long tape kind of monologues. At one point she is talking to her mother who's dead. She's talking to this camera sometimes and then is looking off screen sometimes. And finally, one of the times she looks off screen, the camera follows her gaze to a picture of her mother on the wall. The camera work, you know, keeps you inside of her perspective. It's, it's pretty riveting. It also... It has a touching ending where the director talks about how they came to meet in, in voiceover and basically that they might not have known each other if they had met each other in Cameroon because they came from different backgrounds. But since they were both outsiders in their new adoptive countries, they, they were able to bond. It's a, it's a pretty powerful way to start the festival. And it's, uh, yeah, it's definitely a profile and, and courage just because she's you know, clearly a, a survivor. In Petit Samedi, we also, we stay on, on this character so long at these therapy sessions that we get to see him really make discoveries about himself and realizations about his, mm. his, his character and his past. And we, we, we really see him learning things about himself that he didn't uh, know be, know before. So it's not, it, you know, he never talks to the camera directly. It's not, he's not recounting some story he's already told himself about himself. He's, he's talking to another person. He's talking to his therapist. So he's, and he's put in a context that he's uncomfortable in and he's, yeah, very clearly making like a sincere effort to mine his, his own past and, and kind of dust off these painful parts of it. Yeah, so it's just it's it's incredible how vulnerable he's he's able to be on on screen. There's also a, a scene, you know, there, there's also a couple scenes that don't take place in this mother son dynamic or therapist therapist dynamic. There's there's some even more kind of intimate solo scenes of this this guy just sitting in his bedroom listening to some old tape uh, recording of himself as a kid at a birthday party or something. Um, making jokes as like a six-year-old and him just chuckling and hearing his his mother's voice from that time and and him sort of just like having these little bittersweet chuckles to himself seemingly totally oblivious to a camera that can't be more than a couple feet away from his face so yeah mm. it's, it's amazing that sounds a little a touch of a crap's last tape there <laughs> <laughs> yeah this is always interesting to me is there much questioning from uh, behind the camera or is it mostly just observing people yeah it, it feels entirely you know fly on the wall i don't know uh i haven't spoken to the filmmaker or or read anything about um, the process at all so i'm not sure what their rapport was like but there's yeah there's no interaction uh yeah and all all the situations are s seemingly spontaneous or unconstructed you know that's the that's the impression mm -hmm. that it tries to impart so yeah, and it's unclear how much of a participant the subject is in forming this narrative about himself. Um, I mean, he's doing a lot of the talking, but he's never addressing the person behind the camera. He's never saying, 
you know, this next part is off the record. You know, he, there's 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 nothing like that. So, yeah, I'd be really curious to find out what their relationship was like during the shoot. Yeah. Uh, so that's Patisse MD. And I, and I was talking about Delphine's Prayer. Maybe we can talk about uh, another movie in the selection this year. Uh, before we started recording, you were talking about one that sounded really interesting that I think was, was an example of a film that was, was at IFA. Uh, and that is This Rain Will Never Stop which is kind of country hopping sort of movie. Yeah. So it follows this young man who is of Kurdish and Ukrainian descent and grew up in Syria. And him and and a couple of his other family members fled from Syria in 2012 or 2013 when the civil war there broke out. And because he had family in Ukraine, uh, they went there and they happened to to settle in the Donbass region, which a year later, you know, uh, was invaded by Russia and a war broke out there. So they were displaced again. And then, so the subject's, the main subject's name is Andre. So he started volunteering for the Red Cross and doing this um, volunteer work near the front in Ukraine, delivering supplies to people who were living in this war-torn area. And, um, the film jumps around a lot between different countries and different towns. His his whole family is kind of dispersed. A couple of his family members live in in a couple different towns in Germany. I think they I think they're in um, Rhinebeck in a town called Bochum, from what I can tell based on <laughs> nothing's labeled, uh, based on just street signs or landmarks that I was able to sort of Google. Those are the German towns that some of his family members are in, and then. And then he has some family living, I believe, in the Kurdish part of Iraq. I believe his hometown is a town called Al-Hasaka, which is in kind of the northeastern sliver of Syria that's sandwiched between the Turkish and Iraqi borders. But yeah, the narrative sort of goes between those areas a lot. And, you know, one, one thing that's really interesting about it is it's, it's, in, it's shot in black and white. And it sometimes takes a second to know where we are because it jumps between areas. And there's not there's not the easy shorthand of seeing a totally different color palette in Syria versus Ukraine. So, you know, Mm. we're looking for other sort of like visual signifiers of where we are in in um, Ukraine. Some of the establishing shots are these these massive sort of really forlorn looking vistas of innumerable smokestacks on the horizon of i believe they're 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 tank factories and there's like foundries uh like this is the area near the near the front where this guy's volunteering for the red cross and then we'll go suddenly to a scene in kurdistan that you know has actually has like a similarly sort of stark looking flat landscape but instead of dotted by smokestacks it's dotted by little campfires that people living there are have you know lit and it's it's like a it's there's like little celebrations going on or like people are dancing at one fire or telling stories at another fire but then it'll suddenly cut to a pride parade in germany you know like a sound system on like a a flatbed will go from a ceremony in one place to a ceremony in another place and they're kind of all tied together by this common theme of communal experiences or rituals of some kind. So in Ukraine, we've got these military parades. And in Germany, we have a uh, pride parade. Um, And then it will have a Syrian wedding. 
we're not we don't necessarily get an establishing shot we don't necessarily get you know we certainly don't get like a lower third of where we are so we're sort of encouraged to see more of the commonalities in these different places and these different rituals than we are to see their differences i found that to be a really interesting way of underlining the experience of being sort of uprooted and being kind of tossed around between by by circumstances from one place to another because yeah the subject is currently living in ukraine but you know spend some of his time in in back in in Kurdistan visiting family and some of his time in Germany visiting other family his life is this kind of constant patchwork of having to switch between these different cultural contexts i'm curious how does it work out in terms of the perspective i mean when it's shifting between different countries and different perspectives is there a sense that it's sort of filtered through him or is there kind of more of an omniscient i'm just curious how it's kind of shifting gears between places yeah, for the most part, it maintains his perspective, although we'll sometimes cut to his father. He's a uh, massage therapist. He's in Ukraine. We see him kind of plying his trade and Skyping with uh, family members who are in, in different parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Some of his relatives are in, in Syria, so he, yeah, he, he talks to them, and we see him... Um, talking about the situation in Syria, you know, there's been peace for a week, but then suddenly fighting started again. The Nusra front has, uh, is present again and, and there's shooting in the street. Um, so we get this really uh, intimate and kind of like banal description and, and portrayal of what, what being in a war-torn area is like. For the most part, we, we follow Andre okay. and um, we, yeah, he, he gets reunited with his family. We see them all crying, hugging him. Um, he goes to his brother's wedding. Uh, that's that's Alexei. He is living with his fiance in in Germany. So there's a so they have a a Kurdish wedding in Germany, and you know there's all these kind of like shots of Andres sort of like appreciating, but also like plaintively kind of kind of like semi detached, sort of looking at this looking at the scene. Like you know, mm. it, there's joy, but there's also a, a kind of like wistfulness about. You know, not everybody can be here. His, not his entire family can be here because they're all dispersed throughout the world. And, mm. you know, so there's joy and then mixed with a lot of intense pain at what, is, what has been broken and what hasn't been able to be brought together. Yeah. And, and when he goes to Donbass, what's it like in terms of his bringing like his own personal experience with, I mean, that kind of social rupture and, and, and violence? One thing we see a lot is him driving from one sort of distribution point to another in uh, in the Red Cross van. And some of the other volunteers, I think they're mostly Ukrainian, um, asking him about uh, his background. So, like, there's this one one guy uh, who's another volunteer who, you know, is, is trying to understand the, the Kurdish political dilemma. So he's like, you know, you, you guys are in Turkey and Iraq and Syria, but nobody wants you. What, like... Um, why are you, why do you keep bothering all of them? Um, mm. So then, then Andre has to sort of like patiently explain that like they are trying to be a sovereign nation and, and uh, they, you know, are not trying to bother anybody. Like basically, yeah, he, he really has to like make the, 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 the plight of the Kurds like as palatable as he possibly can to, to somebody who's really not familiar with, with their struggles or there'll just be people, other Red Cross volunteers, asking him to 
describe the the area or the history of the Levant to them. Like one guy is really mm. fascinated with the Tower of of Babel. He thinks he's like, so where is the where is this tower? Like, is it? Have you seen it? And <laughs> and Andre's like, no, no, no. That's that's a biblical story, and like it doesn't exist. <laughs> and. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. Wow. But there's yeah, there's these little moments of of levity in in what's otherwise a pretty stark and humorless environment. Hmm. I, I guess I guess for him working in these areas, I mean, it must be hard, but not like traumatic. It, he must be getting something out of it, helping other helping people keeps him from becoming a a refugee that's put in the kind of helpless position that a society often puts them. He, it sounds like he has more active. He gets to have a more active role in a way. Yeah, definitely. But it but it's also clear that his background, you know, having fled Syria and then having arrived at where he is, is is very much an inescapable part of his identity. Like there's a scene where he is called upon to address a fundraiser gathering where he uh, goes goes up on stage uh, to describe his work for the Red Cross. And there's a scene right before it where he's being coached by one of his Ukrainian coworkers, you know, basically tell, teaching him how to hit all the points that are going to elicit people's sympathy in the in the most in the most direct way. So you know, like, don't forget to mention that you're a refugee. Don't forget to mention that you know your family was was scattered to the four corners of the globe because of war. Don't forget to mention this, this, and that. And he, you know, it doesn't it doesn't come naturally to him, to, you know, to, to, to always peddle the same narrative that people are expecting to hear. Right. Um, so you, yeah, you, you, yeah, you see him having to get coached on these things. He's getting ta- the talking points on his own life. <laughs> this kind of yeah. presumptiveness of that. Well, yeah, I, I will definitely be catching up to that movie. Um, and that's uh, this rain will never stop. Um, and I think that was a title that was at uh, Info before, and now it's at True, there's a True False. This might be a bit of a leap in terms of a segue, but just hearing about this idea of having to like present your identity and kind of package it uh, for others to make sense of it and connect with you and have some stake in your life. Um, you know, totally different situation, but... Uh, a, a movie that I saw, I think we both saw uh, at True False is The Grocer's Son, The Mayor, The Village, and The World. Mm-hmm. And But basically, it's a documentary about a small town in France where they're trying to get going basically a documentary streaming platform, but also a documentary production facility. And it's kind of an outgrowth out of what seems to be some sort of already existent uh, entity. The guy who's heading up this operation for the stream platform, he's trying to pitch it to get funding and to get subscribers to it. He's basically having to present documentary film as this thing of cultural value and that has a you know social meaning as well for for people participating in it. And he's also making sure to get the the town on board. Uh, and you know, local and regional politicians. It's sort of an interesting meta thing to see how he's portraying documentary film and this platform. And Claire Simone, the uh, director, she a kind of foil for this episode, for this effort with the documentary film is this farm in the town. There's definitely a vineyard. They're definitely harvesting harvesting grapes, 
at, at some point. So, yeah. I like how I'm talking about this like this was like years ago and I watched it this past weekend. I mean, that's, again, pandemic brain. But, I mean, uh, Claire Simone, uh, who's just a such a, like an invigorating filmmaker for me, um, she also directed The Competition, I think it's called The Competition, about a, a French f- film school in Paris, uh, which is just terrific on, on class and the production of art um, and all the different filters that go into the entrance exams there uh, that kind of determine what who is suitable to, you know, make images of our world, uh, of the world. Um, anyway, so she made this. But yeah, so I just, that, that idea that between the farming operation, which also is well established as this cultural heritage for France, you know, I, I really thought that was interesting, putting those side by side. So I just found this movie working on many levels. I think that, yeah, it has a, it has a lot of... This rain will never stop. Also, mostly took place in a bunch of a, a ton of smaller, smaller towns and villages. And yeah, there's also this theme of kind of having to fit your life into a saleable narrative, which is what the director, I think, of Tank, which is the streaming platform slash school slash documentary workshop. From what I saw, a big part of it was Jean-Marie uh, on the phone with with various funders or politicians or, or yeah, pe- people at various levels of local administration and pitching why tank is important French cultural heritage or, or why it's important specifically for the cultural heritage of this region or the, the village of Lusas. I, I don't know what, what you felt while you were watching, but it it's a very sort of like process oriented, drudgery oriented film. I feel like there's there's a few moments where we, we have these like little celebrations of oh we put it we put a screen up and we have a public screening in this field, or yeah we hit six thousand subscribers and and there's cause to celebrate. For, but for the most part, it's really just these people in the weeds, really of trying to run this thing against against the odds and trying to get. <laughs> anybody to care about it or uh or give them money so if yeah i mean i feel like if you're if you work in that space if you're if you you know apply for a lot of grants professionally or you know spend a lot of your working life doing that this might this might be a a very frustrating movie to to watch but um you know and it was really fitting to see this at true false which also you know has a an identity of being like this you know scrappy and especially this edition of it Mm. uh putting up five screens in a in a public park you know and figuring out transportation and social distancing and and all of that and and as as they point out and they're you know i was just reading the program i had sort of styled the (laughs) last year's edition of true false as the last film festival because as far as i know they were the last festival to happen before they were all shut down because of lockdowns but and now they're they're sort of pitching this edition of it as the first, you know, hashtag first festival after lockdown restrictions have, have kind of gradually started lifting. So it was a, mic- a microcosm to see, to be watching this scrappy David and Goliath project taking place in the French countryside while we're sitting in a, in a, right. an impromptu uh, screening space in a park. Everybody's sort of like figuring out like, can I sit in this part of the field or is there like, there's like a, pu- a massive puddle here. You're just going to sink into the mud, but that was totally unforeseeable. <laughs> oh, now there's suddenly the winds are picking up and the weather changes every five minutes. Although I was told, so there's a joke 
if you don't like the weather in Missouri, just wait five minutes. But uh, I was told that uh, actually this joke is attributed to Mark Twain, and and he actually said it about a lot of different states and cities. Yeah, I've heard it about Boston. Yeah, <laughs> but it's but, but it's certainly true of Missouri. At least this part of Missouri, the the weather was <laughs> quite volatile. Actually, when I left at three thirty a.m to get back to the airport in St. Louis, there was a, a torrential downpour and thunderstorm that I had not foreseen. But for the most part, yeah. most of the fest passed in sunny skies and not gale force winds until the last night. But anyway, I digress. But anyway, so I think that, yeah, there was, there's, a, there's a great moment there's where we see an outdoor screening at Tank in the in the French countryside there, and uh, and the inflatable screen they are using is exactly the same, probably made by the same company. Many the uh, inflated inflatable screen that we're watching this movie on as it, as it zooms out. So it's like a a frame within a frame of exactly the same thing, and a crowd sitting on the lawn. Oh, that's great. Yeah, <laughs> watching a movie like a movie of a like small town in in a kind of rural part of France. In an open field, I mean that. I, I think that just takes the experience to to another level. But I think that's always also just a part of the true false tradition in a way, which is there's such a specificity, you know, to all of the screening places in an ordinary year. Jumping back to the Claire Simone film, another thing it gets gets at is the feeling of precarity about just like the cultural project, <laughs> for lack of a better word. Like all of us just trying to kind of pursue our, 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 our loves, whether it's making the movies, putting on the movies, trying to appreciate and write about the movies, all the different challenges and forces that feel like uh, they are not organized to support <laughs> a lot of this or all parts of this or the full diversity and range of, of culture. And that's something that the movie, you know, gets across. You said, you know, it's a frustrating thing to watch if you've, done it participate in anything like this working in an organization um I, I love how there's one of the like little climactic moments in the movie is when like the mailchimp mailing goes out there yeah there there's such a sort of like bitter sweetness to that scene where he yeah the guy it's like a young like 20 year old guy who's coding the website and he's clearly stayed up for 48 hours and he's like bleary eyed staring at the screen and finally he like gets the player to work on the website and like you can scroll up and down and like everything looks fine and he's like oh my god yes and he's on the phone with somebody like you got to check it out it's it's working it's great and then the whoever he's talking to is like you know i don't think the player works it's not playing properly and he's like what yeah <laughs> and and yeah then he's it's back to the drawing board yeah there's there's a lot of those little yeah. kind of like little bittersweet moments in it yeah, she does a good kind of Wiseman-esque look at, at, through meetings uh, at how the documentary platform project is going. I mean, one thing that crops up is that the leader is ill, uh, and so he has, seems to, like he has to pull back a little. So not having that kind of, uh, you know, leader or, and, and kind of figurehead uh, is, is tough, and then it also seems to like liberate people to talk about how burned out they are and how they can't possibly take on more work. And, you know, it really brings home uh, the, the word culture workers, you know, I mean, <laughs> the, yeah, everyone is, is really just putting in all these hours. And I, I was just so impressed by 
I felt like the movie really does move, even though in a way it's moving in circles because of the roadblocks that keep coming up and, and just the kind of iterative nature of, of this, these kind of things where, you know, you're applying for money, you're hoping something works out, a little bit of construction happens, you know, this or that, oh, a politician's coming to town, we have to kind of take them around. And so, uh, you know, that's another hard thing to get. Someone said that she compared, she, that he, she talked about the wire in her Q&A. I should have watched it. I didn't watch it. There's a, what you were talking about, the, the, the cyclical, uh, the cyclical nature of the, of the project. And it seems like they, they get mm. one step ahead and two steps back at every turn. And, right. And I think one really interesting parallel in, in the movie is the comparison between this cultural work and farming. Cause they're constantly, both of them are constantly happening in parallel on this, on this plot of land that the school is on and in the surrounding village. Right. So, you know, yes, we do see these meetings, these frustrating meetings happening for the majority of the time. But, you know, the other third of the time we see farmers who may or may not be involved with the school, you know, harvesting grapes or pears and talking about the kind of madness of um, of betting that the that all the conditions are going to be correct for yielding a harvest and how basically in both cases the it, you know both in the in the case of the the film school and in farming your the the success of your enterprise is completely dependent on forces beyond your control so on the one hand the whims of uh investors or our government arms and on the other hand on, on the whims of nature you know there, there's a, a big part of one of the central farmer partners of the of the school whose entire crop is destroyed because of a hail a late spring uh hailstorm or sorry late yeah late summer hailstorm but uh anyway yeah so there's a constant sort of parallel being drawn between these two kinds of work which is not something that maybe comes intuitively but it also demonstrates how it is that these documentarians and these farmers are able to collaborate and 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 see their goals as being somehow connected yeah, absolutely. And that, that makes me think of a scene toward the end. I mean, maybe it's even right at the end. I forget. There's a sort of just one of these kind of periodic festival kind of gatherings that happen. And I mean, I think the main guy is talking about he's I think he's just given like a opening speech or spiel about, you know, think about what it's going to be like in 50 years or 100 years or something like that. And, and just appealing to like the sense of like cultural continuity and that one of the farmers i think it's a farmer he's talking with is like yeah i like that part i like that part when when you said like a hundred years from now uh you know think about a hundred years from now um so i don't know i i was kind of moved by that that that's what kind of connected them is the notion that they're trying to do something that lasts and they're trying to do something that they hope later generations will will, will kind of continue but um yeah, so I mean, that's the grocer's son, the mayor, the village, and the world, which I think is a reference to the Romero movie, the mayor and the media tech or something. But I, I want to talk about a, a couple of short films. But first, just as you know, another couple of comparison points in this true false program, uh, just kind of small communities, uh, movies that are getting into small communities and preserving their cultures. 
two that come to mind are Songs That Flood the River, which is centered on women in a Colombian village who sing songs about the Colombian civil conflict, you know, the FARC and paramilitaries. Um, and I think the songs are called Alabaus. And it's kind of beautiful, but also very powerful. They're these basically like these political songs that they they compose and, and sing um, and they commemorate past events. And they're also kind of activist songs and no Kings. Um, that's a movie. It's set in Brazil, uh, a community it's called Caixara, which is, you know, a particular kind of fishing based community. So I just wanted to mention those two um, no Kings and songs that flood the river, but yeah, short, short films. Uh, I want to make sure that we talked about these there was one program that happily we both had seen and two films in there I think you wanted to talk about were The the Flooded House and Red Taxi. Yeah. So The Flooded House was directed by Lucia Malandro and is about her family in Uruguay who a couple of her family members were involved with the Tupamaros National Liberation Movement in the 70s. And uh, the title, The Flooded House, refers to that, their family home that was raided by the uh, Uruguayan military in 1972, I think. And basically, she tells the story through archival home video from the 90s, going through this house, and also through experimental animation. It looks like a black background with drawings made on it and erased and then remade in maybe chalk or some other white colored pencil or crayon or something. And so the story of of her family and, and this sort of trauma is told in that way. And, you know, it was one of the more formally adventurous things I saw this year. And it really reminded me, this is probably a pretty basic comparison to make, but it really reminded me of the Wolf House a really amazing stop motion film about the Colonia Dignidad German colony in Chile in the sixties and seventies and about the abuse that happened there to its members, mostly its child members. That it, it really reminded me of that. I mean, just, just that it's a, uh, a way of grappling with historical trauma in South America using experimental animation techniques in, instead of somehow directly confronting it through archival footage or something. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. No, I also thought of the Wolf House watching this. And I mean, it's just also interesting how it connects the animation with VHS footage. And also they have a couple of cuts where someone is like walking down a hallway and they, they like turn and then it'll segue into like VHS footage of, of people in a room or in a hallway, you know, so it's just this idea that, that, I mean, just not to make it totally banal, but just that the past is living in the present, you know, so a country, a family's experience, sometimes I think of a country as like a house, you know, uh, that we're all still living in and, you know, it, it, with a house of memories, with memories, you don't escape it, you know, you can turn into a room and, and you'll, you'll, you'll run into some legacy or other. Uh, actually, it's funny, the Wolf House also a bit of a casualty in a way of of a pandemic because if i remember correctly it it uh, it was going to get a theatrical run at anthology either last march or last april i remember because i assigned a review of it (laughs) and i was all happy about that 
I'm not actually sure. I think maybe they showed it online, but I mean, good good on an anthology for uh, giving it a run. But yeah, the the flooded house. Uh, the, the other short that that you singled out, uh, which I is I think is really great to mention. I'm surprised there aren't like a hundred movies like this, right? The the kind of cabbie based documentary. <laughs> anyway, tell me a bit about uh, what you thought of Red Taxi. Uh, Red Taxi, like you said before, is is about is really firmly uh, has its feet planted in the present because it's it's about the 2019 uh, mass protests in Hong Kong and the way that it approaches that is by interviewing taxi drivers in Hong Kong and also on the mainland in Shenzhen and I think the whole thing if I recall correctly is shot inside these cabs and we yeah we have a, a Hong Kong cab cab driver talking about you know, supporting the protesters and talking about Hong Kong needs, you know, more independence. It needs to shrug off the colonial yoke of of China and the Communist Party. And, and as he's talking very candidly about this, uh, he'll he'll turn a corner and there's a burning barricade and a bunch of twenty year olds running by in, in respirators. And um, and he, you know, and he'll just like back up and take the other turn. Um, and then it'll cut to a cabbie in Shenzhen, and the tone couldn't be more different. He's talking about the Hong Kong protesters are agents of U.S. imperialism. You know, they're on the payroll of the CIA. Uh, you know, they're traitors to their country. You can't be too authoritarian with these people. They they need to be put in their place. And and what he's driving around in is you know like the probably one of the most rapidly urbanized and like kind of glitzy cities uh all all we see really from the window of the cab is massive skyscrapers uh and like elaborate fountains I, we we pass by at least one or two different sort of like pageants going on randomly in the in the street that look like some mix of uh, a a wedding and some kind of like diplomat welcoming parade but yeah so the yeah it contrasts these two environments and then also very starkly contrasts these two different kinds of political views and it was made by an anonymous collective because for yeah for fear of reprisals and i'm and i guess another movie at this year's festival uh, on the same subject is inside the red brick wall that's a feature length documentary. Um, but yeah, this does a lot in just a short period of time. And it's weird. Actually, I had just seen, or just uh, recently seen another Hong Kong set film in New Directors, Jonas Bach feature, Wood and Water, which also part of its backdrop actually is the Hong Kong protests from the eyes of a foreigner, a German uh, woman who's visiting her son. In, in the city um, so it's it's more of an experience that she can't really have full access to um, and it's in kind of a stark contrast to her travels so yeah those were uh, two shorts of flooded house red taxi um, I also just wanted to kind of flag a couple other shorts in that same program because it's it's a pretty remarkable mix one of them is a Kevin Jerome Everson uh, short the I and S of lives, which actually is also 
with a backdrop of protests. I, I think it's filmed during Black Lives Matter March last year, I think. Um, but it stays on a roller skater who's kind of going in circles. Um, that's a movie I'm still in, unpacking. Um, but there's that. And then same batch in the same program, there was a behind-the-scenes making-of film for the latest movie that's called Lemongrass Girl. I, I only realized partway through when I recognized an actress that it's it was the behind-the-scenes movie for... I mean, that's a stupid way of saying it. It was the making-of or um, para, the para film for uh, Come Here, which was a movie from Anacha Suichikorn Porn, which showed in Berlin uh, this year, but for some reason didn't really get a lot of attention. Uh, so that was kind of interesting to suddenly realize that was what I was watching, and I liked it. I really liked um, the INS of Lives too, and it, it was. It took me a second to figure out what the what the title was in reference to, but the the guy who's roller skating. Oh, what is it? Well, he the guy who's so he he's in Black Lives Matter Plaza in D.C. I think, and he's just roller skating on just like a twenty square foot little area. But the INS of Lives, I think, refers to the fact that he's roller skating on the I and the S on the Black Lives Matter mural oh. in you know on the lives part of it that's that's painted on the street. Oh, <laughs> that's really interesting. But yeah, I, I really like that because it's just seven minutes of of him roller skating. He's fine, and I'm he's he's a better roller skater than I am. But he's not like a, a flashy. <laughs> roller skater it's, it's not like we're watching this because because this is an amazing performance it's like he's kind of learning but you you actually sort of see his progress in in just seven minutes of like sort of stumbling around initially and then actually being able to do like a, a pretty nice like tight turn and go backwards a little bit in the, at the end <laughs> yeah well we i'm i guess we can sort of wrap up i just want to do one last shout out to another movie from the Wild Sea, which is a movie about a seal rescue operation. And I thought this was a pretty impressive film in getting us really close up to the headspace, if that's the word, of seals as they are taken in from the ocean and rehabilitated. And there's even the use of like subjective audio for, for the seals and from the seals perspective and just some great shots too of seals kind of lounging on tubs so that was a surprise also i should just say for teleported the movies i was talking about were the movies i was able to watch the other ones i i happened to have seen them before i would love to hear more a, a little bit more about the teleported experience and how uh, <laughs> it sounded it's a, you, what, from what you were saying before it sounded like like true falls kind of went out of their way to make it feel like you were there in some way and sort of add some kind of tactile or olfactory uh component <laughs> yes they they did yeah and 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 yeah like i said it, that kind of box box of goodies that that, that was put together they also did a, a i guess an, an unboxing zoom event People were encouraged to open their box at the same time. On, on, I think it was Wednesday noon before the festival started. I mean, the overriding feeling I was getting was just people were so hungry, <laughs> you know, and fond of the festival, uh, so hungry for you know connecting with the festival in, in that way. So that was that was kind of neat. It was kind of a sweet 
MST3K vibe from the <laughs> from the True False Lab uh, set that they were they were talking from. And also, I got to thinking about Zoom quality video, and I think part of why I thought of MST3K is because Zoom quality video, at least with my connection, sometimes reminds me of '90s television. And that was something that I remember noticing last spring, which is just how everyone was basically getting used to bad video again. Like it was, it was not disqualifying that people would be on television, uh, you know, doing news reports, uh, doing commentary uh, bumpers from their living room, and the movie it would not look great because not everyone was set up to do that, and. So I, I don't know. I was also thinking about uh, image quality and and the kind of hierarchies involved there. So, but anyway, that was the prelude. Uh, what I did want to mention about teleport is that on the final night they also tried to kind of replicate the I don't know just the kind of mystery tour aspect that that can be for the for the festival. Um, I guess on the night where they might ordinarily have a, a, a party, they had teleported people set up with Eschaton, a kind of preview performance of a kind of virtual nightclub or virtual series of, of rooms in a nightclub with different performers. Eschaton, I don't, only association I have with that is that, isn't that the name of the game in Infinite Chest or, I don't know, anyway. Um, oh, I don't remember. But yeah, so basically though, it's just a series of rooms, you know, and, and you go, you click through the different rooms and i i found it pretty i found it charming and fun you know so like there was a room where i don't know what was it. there was a room where there was a guy doing a basically kind of ventriloquist puppet act um, i mean there's just a general cabaret vibe to, to a lot of them there was another room that was yeah, just a, a kind of singer with a crown who was also like working the crowd so uh, anyone she could see in the Zoom windows, she was kind of talking to. I, I, I think she talked to Sam Adams because he was sitting in a room surrounded by books. Um, and she was like calling out each person in turn. And so he's like, you look aloof and ready to quote Milton from your study. Um, so that was kind of. Uh, and then to me, I, my, vid- my video wasn't working because I didn't have enough internet juice. Uh, so it said, she said, she said, Nicholas Rippold, you are a mystery. Anyway, so that was cute. And then, so I'm clicking through, but like I had had troubles with my connection. And so I didn't even have much time because it was open for a limited amount of time. So I like clicked to one room and it was, it looked like pole dancing was about to start. um, So that I clicked to other rooms. There was more kind of cabaret style. So uh, you had your gusts of wind. I had my like internet wonkiness uh, preventing me from having a smooth passage. Uh, between these zoom rooms but that that was that was kind of the most colorful part oh i also want to mention that they made a great effort to uh feature the buskers you know which is this uh the music acts that precede screenings at true false so they they set up teleporters of links to watching them perform i watched a couple and, and they seem to be just performing in an open spaces i don't know what was the busker situation on, on the ground so uh, every screening was preceded by a, a busker. Um, I, as I mentioned before, I got to almost every screening late. So I only got to see, I think, one busker. I think there was only one screening that I got to with, with 10 or 15 minutes to spare before it started. 
Uh, and it was a guy playing various string instruments. I think there was a bazooki and a, some other, uh, some kind of zither and uh, a lute. He adroitly switched between a few different string instruments and, you know, had a little Venmo QR code to tip him. And, uh, but, you know, I, yeah, I think they had a ton of buskers. Uh, I think every screening had, had uh, a different one. That's good. Tastes vary, but I, I always appreciate that live element. So yeah, I don't know. That was the that was the virtual experience. Well, you know, to to be fair, the in person edition also had some extra accoutrement that previous editions hadn't had. So um, what's that? Well, you know, lawn chairs. You know, you never had to worry about bringing your own <laughs> camping equipment. To, uh, so that you know that happened. Yeah, I I became very familiar with this one ultra lightweight rei camping chair that you know was a lifesaver because going back to the weather patterns of missouri the days were hot and the the nights were chilly and the the lawns you know were were quite frosty by the time uh it had been dark for a few hours so if you didn't have a lawn chair your 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 ass was frozen by the time you got out of there (laughs) so that that there's, there's that's the sacrifice you make for for great documentary film yeah, I associate a certain kind of, you know, like self-willed austerity uh, with documentary <laughs> film in general. So, you know, like the 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 watching itself is already a, a bit austere in a lot of cases, and then you know, just adding to that the the sheer physical discomfort of of sitting in a in a soggy field uh, is, you know, I think really actually just adds to the experience. <laughs> well. For for me, documentary film means having way too many. Documentary film there means having way too many uh, baked goods uh, at, at the rag tag. So that's my sacrifice. Is is a very greasy fingers. Um, well, so what do we think? Who won? You know, I I don't know if it's up to us to decide. I think we need an impartial arbiter. I think I think what I would like I would like to hear is is I, I'd like you to poll some of your listeners at some point and and you know get the word about which which edition is, is superior because that's that's really the, ultimately the goal of this whole exercise. Okay, I'll I'll set up one of those. Um, maybe I'll just do one of those Twitter polls, um, and that those will be the two options, and we'll see what happens. Yeah, that sounds good. All right. Well, I think that'll bring us to the end to our true false discussion. Yeah, I will. I will say that, not to prejudice the vote, but I, I, I do, I do like physically being at a festival. And thank you, Cosmo, for going on this <laughs> long tour of of the movies. I appreciate you taking the time. Hopefully, next year we'll we'll be able to compare notes on the spot uh, in in Colombia. Yeah, I hope so too. Um, thanks for having me on, and uh, I hope that if next year's true false is more similar to previous years, that you'll resume your tradition of uh, doing a post game analysis at Cafe Berlin, and I'd uh, <laughs> love to join you there. <laughs> sounds good. Sounds good. Um, oh, and one last thing. Um, I don't know what the timing is going to work out, but I encourage our listeners to head over to Screen Slate where Cosmo and I will be writing about our respective experiences. All right, both we'll sign off there.
The documentary All Light Everywhere looks at the phenomenon of body cameras. In the process, it becomes an insightful, multifaceted reflection on cameras, weapons, policing, and perception itself. Director Theo Anthony looks at questions from multiple angles. He visits a manufacturer of body cams, he traces a history of seeing and shooting back to the 19th century, and he visits a tense Baltimore community meeting about the city's eye-in-the-sky surveillance system. I spoke with Theo about his movie and how he maps out complicated ideas on screen. Old Light Everywhere opens on June 4th, when the anniversary of nationwide protests for justice puts a renewed spotlight on the practices of law enforcement. Let's go to our interview. What was the genesis for the project? I think that a lot of my film work has always included myself as part of the equation and, you know, tried to understand not just the image that I was capturing, but also the process of capturing that image. I had these questions in mind coming out of Rad Film, coming out of some other projects I was working at the time. And so those were always like floating around and was kind of like the, the seabed for a lot of this. Uh, but I would say that, you know, being in Baltimore, you know, during the uprising after the killing of Freddie Gray and just seeing all the conversation that was happening on the ground around, you know, police reform and, and organizing and also just the role of journalism in, in, in telling that story and telling like a fair story definitely influenced the direction that I took in this film. And um, yeah, you know, I think one of the biggest reforms that got the most attention was, was body cameras. And uh, as I looked into body cameras and started to see the connection between weapons and, 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 and cameras, I saw you know, a really compelling starting point for this investigation. Yeah, the discussion of body cams is so fascinating and also frightening because they, they clearly seem to think that the body cams are objective because the officer is supposed to be this impartial instrument of the law in some way. But it really just seems mostly about reinforcing authority, basically, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's a way of upholding a dominant uh, narrative. Um, I think that in the case of body cameras, they are designed to elevate the officer's subjective experience into a you know, quote-unquote objective account in a, in a court of law. And you know we can have all these discussions about transparency and accountability and how they're sold to the public, but the fact of the matter is body camera evidence almost always is privileged over civilian video and actually the way that they're sold to police departments is as a weapon to combat you know what they call citizen journalism the idea you know and in, in, in the training exercise as you can see in the film the way that the police officer talks about it is that you know when citizens have the camera they can control the start and the stop point they control this perspective and body cameras are not really about, you know, an all-seeing objective point of view, but actually just giving the police officers back that editorial control. And it really is editorial control. You know, you're, they are the cinematographers. They are the, you know, the, the editors, even though these clips aren't really edited. But, you know, when we're talking about a film, like they are the people behind the camera. And there's a huge amount of power that comes with that, obviously. And one of the ways that you get into this world view, uh, so to speak, of, of body cams and, and their role is through a tour, uh, a company tour of the company Axon, uh, which I just want to note was formerly known as Taser International. And I'm curious, this is such an interesting series of sequences. How did you arrange this with the company? And what did you 
tell them? I, I, it seems they're very open about doing the tour. You know, very early on, I came across Axon and, you know, formally they were just in the middle of their name change to, to Taser. And that's how I really saw like that first spark of weapon and camera. And obviously there's a, a deeper historical thread to that, that the film explores. But, you know, Axon is a private company and they are selling a product that um, is for police departments, you know, as I said, to like to tell their side of the story and to also help with a lot of the bureaucratic labor of, of police work and filing papers and reports and stuff like that. But, you know, they really their whole selling point is that they are a company that increases transparency and the logic is that if you have a camera there, you will see what's happening, you will know what's happening. And with that knowledge, both sides can be held accountable. Like, and that's the premise that all of this is founded on, that if you're being filmed, the officer, you know, you're going to act right. And if the officer knows they're being filmed, well, they're going to act right. I think that's not really how it actually works, um, as, as, as I show in the film, but like that's, that's how it's sold. So when we're approaching these places, you know, we always approach from that transparency angle saying like your entire business model is about transparency. So, you know, so be transparent, show us how this works. We're really there. You know, I'm not, I'm not there to corner them into tough questions. I'm actually very interested in how they present their own company. And, you know, the Steve Tuttle, the spokesperson who gives us the tour is, you know, he's like a really you know nice, sweet guy who also is just speaks as the company. He is like the speakerphone for Axon International. And that was just a performance that we were always leaning into. We did a lot of research, um, looking at all their corporate videos, looking at all their interviews, looking at all the product demonstrations that they had done and really trying to keep you know, what we were filming with him within that range. So it felt familiar and, and, and practiced. And I think that's why it seems like so sleek and polished is that he's given this tour so many times before. And we just let that performance really speak for itself in the film. Yeah, it's an interesting use of corporate self-presentation uh, in, in a way that they're kind of, you just let them tell on themselves. Um, but it's not ironic, which I think is different from a lot of uses of corporate videos or corporate tours. So it's this kind of interesting combination of like Haroon Faraki and Playtime, Tati's Playtime or something. Um, <laughs> Those are two great references. <laughs> but I mean, I am actually curious, are you, are you a, a Haroon Faraki fan or? Yeah, he's, I mean, he, I think in, 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 as a model of like what an artist can be as combining your curiosity and your practice with, you know, education. And I think he's just like the most amazing model. He's such a giant in, in my life. And the first time I saw, as you see, it just was um, a game changer for me. I, I didn't know that you could put images with words like that and just totally opened my mind. Cause I, I, I didn't come from like a, a film school or like a, you know, documentary background where I, I just, I had all these interests. I, I, interests, I did music videos. I was in, you know, to like writing, I was into research history. And I, I didn't know that all those things could, could be combined in that way. And the more I learn about uh, Faraki's practice and his work with his, you know, his institute the, uh, that, you know, he had running in Germany and his activism, it's just, it, he's just a really inspirational figure to me. That, that makes me uh, want to ask how you plan a movie like this. Uh, I mean, it, it just seems to require so many different um, avenues of exploration. I mean, what was your map of what you needed to show or, or represent, you know, go, going in? I mean, it's almost mm. like, I mean, you know, you want to show the 
apparatus of the police, you want to show the apparatus of suppliers to police, you want to show community, you want to mm. show workings of the human eye. I mean, maybe I'm getting too mechanical there, but do you kind of go in with, with a bit of a, a plan like that? Or, or how do you, what's the kind of plan of attack? Yeah, I mean, I'm always kind of gathering and I have my own interests and I find that I get stuck to certain images or stories that I, I come across in the news or a historical, you know, image that I come across. And I become kind of like this like magnet that picks up all these filings and I have to like sort through them, you know, and find out the connection. And, you know, very early on, we had the the pillars of what we wanted to film. You know, we had Axon tour, we had the, the Baltimore Police Department classroom. We had all those elements there. And, you know, that was, the bulk of the filming was done in like 20 by 2018 or so. So even though we have those pillars, the way in which we're navigating them and the direction and path that we approach them is constantly changing. And, and the historical archival is always kind of like this buffer zone that, that changes our approach. And it's really sitting with the material for a very long time, going back to the primary documents, really reading that, and you'll find something that just jumps out to you and really just following that. It's just like a very long process of following threads and you just find these amazing connections. And it's one of my favorite things in the in this whole process is just being in the archive and finding an image that, you know, connects to something that you have no idea these images could sit next to each other. And from there, it's just a process of iteration. You have an idea, you test it out, um, you take that feedback, you go back and you're constantly rebalancing and, you know, iterating and iterating until you kind of reach this equilibrium in the end where you just kind of have to drop what you're doing because the, the deadline <laughs> has come. And um, it could have gone on forever. And it's just the ideas I, I feel like are things that I want to explore in films for the rest of my life, you know, and that really helped relieve the anxiety that I don't have to do it all in one film that I feel with this film and with subject review and my previous film, I really stumbled onto a lot of ideas and a lot of people and histories that I, I want to keep on exploring, you know, even outside of film, just on my own time. So it's just a lot of curiosity and a lot of iteration. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's totally, I love it. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I get lost in, I won't call them rabbit holes because I think what the movie shows is how, you just have these strands that connect things across history to the very, very present moment. I mean, one great mm -hmm. thing is this discussion of early forms of photography. And, you know, suddenly mm -hmm. we're learning about the Venus uh, transit in 1874. Yeah, yeah. I, I looked up and now I know that word is the word that they used it <laughs> for astronomers or whatever. Yeah, yeah the transit. Yeah. What, yeah. what led you to that connection? I mean, it's kind of, it reminded me a little of, you know, when people talk about the origins of police forces in the South or something, do you know mm. what I mean? Where you suddenly mm. pick, it's like you're pulling up a root in the ground and, and you know what I mean? And, and it leads back to some origin, you know? What led you to that particular yeah. connection? Yeah. I don't know the exact moment. I can say the exact source. There's this, there's this author and um, academic who I really enjoy named uh, Jimena Canales, and she has a book called Tenth of a Second that's kind of a history of these early photographic technologies and how they embody des certain desires and political movements of the time and just like incredible thinker in 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 the history of science you know philosophy of science all that um strand highly recommend her her, her work so she writes a lot about the transit of venus and you know i had come across um the work of you know etienne jules murray is a person that everyone you know you learn about in the film 101 class like he made the portable camera, but I didn't know that 
he had made a, a photographic rifle as like one of his first cameras. And that connection was there, which led me to Jules Janssen, which led me to Jimena Canales' work. And, you know, it just grows. And there's like such a huge wealth of resources out there of, of like writers and historians who've, who've done this work already. And so like everything in the film is like, you know, on the, on the shoulders of people like that. Simone Brown, uh, Dark Matters, her book is, is another one that was like instrumental to this. So yeah, you know, it's it's hard to pick a moment. I can only just sort of give the breadcrumbs that led, led me to where I am right now. The community meeting is another just completely, you just see a discussion and, and all the debates and, and all the, the, the feelings about it unfolding in like in real time. How many community events did you go go to or how did you build that piece I think that the the filmmaker that I am right now, I don't feel comfortable going in with a camera where I haven't spoken, you know, to the people involved and haven't planned out the shoot with them. Um, I like to set up very like clear and exp- explicit boundaries with my shoot, um, where you know we discuss what who we are, what we're trying to do, and that that ranges like from you know the more playful stuff with the you know the students to like with Steve, you know, we send Steve, you know, with Axon, a a shot list of everything that we're going to do. And he has ideas to bring to it. So it's like, no matter who we are always like collaborating with the person on camera in, 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 in some, in some respect, the community meeting was the only exception to that in, in the entire film. And it was for that reason, it was, it was a moment that we, you know, almost didn't go to. We were supposed to film with uh, Ross McNutt, who's the the, the CEO of Persistent Surveillance uh, Systems, who's, you know, the, the spy plane company that we profile in the film, you know, we were trying to get an interview with him and it was, I think he was trying to show the community engagement side of it, like, you know, show that this was something that was being done in, in concert with the, with the community. And we talked it over a lot, my, you know, my producers and I, and, and we just, we didn't feel like it was, there was too many unknowns. We didn't know who'd show up. We didn't know if, if anyone would show up. We didn't know, like whether it be we'd be welcome there but we decided to go with it because we you know we, we figured that like it actually might be a great opportunity for people to speak back to this surveillance that they were um, being subjected to and that happened but also there was a really important moment where the community was speaking back to us as as, as, as coming in to their space kind of unannounced and you know it, it was a moment where the sort of invasive exploitative practices of surveillance really collided with our own documentary practice in a, in a way that's like very uncomfortable to watch but like is also really important to sit with and to like include in the calculus of the film it got very intense but everyone was like so clear and it's like you know that community was at the flashpoint of the uprising after you know the killing of freddie gray and there's a lot of people who who came in and got the story they wanted and, and left, you know, without really considering the needs or priorities of that community. And um, that skepticism and uh, questioning of us is like well warranted and well deserved. And um, so, you know, it was, I thought it was really important to ground the piece and like, you know, we're talking about surveillance and stuff in the abstract. And here you have like people who are talking back to it in their own words and, you know, talking back to us as well, you know, which I think is really the one of the core motivations for the film. Yeah. And it's also reflective of a general ethos of responsibility, I think, about just the act of filmmaking and the act of producing images. Uh, That kind of leads me to another thing I wanted to ask. 
What was the thinking behind uh, cell phone footage of police brutality, for example? How did you arrive at not really featuring that in, in the film? No, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad you asked. Um, I think very early on, I, I'll start by saying that I think when people hear that there's body cameras in this film, uh, that people are going to assume that it's filled with images of like mainly like black and brown people having violence enacted on them by by police. Um, very early on, we made a hard rule that there would be no images of explicit violence within the film. I think I have come a long way on this. I think if you look at my earlier work, which does have like some violent imagery that I honestly look back on and, and feel like a bit queasy about, just seeing how like the course of the last few years and just having these images of violence flash in our faces all the time, um, I've come to really doubt the effectiveness of traumatizing your audience as a way of proving how traumatizing the world can be. I think that especially for black people in this country right now who have to like endure those images, like it's, it's like, who is this really for? And like, what are you doing? And I think that there is, there are certain audiences that have like a bit of like a voyeurism to that. And cause it like gets their, you know, blood boiling to see that. But I think it's actually a lot harder to sit and to like, see outside the frame and all the violence that goes into constructing this violent image because there's so many steps before that so i i was like let's just step back from the the loudest the most traumatizing thing and just see like what else can can come into view if we if we if we look away from that kind of blinding light for a second and um yeah i think i think it allowed us to really dive deep into uh, a much much deeper history and practice i think another way that you avoid kind of numbing the viewer is just trying all these different angles into these general areas of, of, of thought and life. Um, and you also set us off balance from the opening shot, really. Um, I, I wonder if you could tell me the story about about that, which basically looks like we're going inside someone's eye, like we're at an eye doctor visit or something. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> um, it, we we tried out a lot of openings. Um, I think there was a point in the film where it started to feel too abstract. Like that that sort of process that I was talking about of like let's you know let's step back from the traumatizing images and see all this like soft power around the edges that is you know just as violent. It started to feel a little too distanced and a little too abstract. And I think we we this was, you know, around this summer with all with everything that was happening, you know, around the around the country after the, the murder of George Floyd and all these questions on police reform and everything that was happening. We just we, we really felt that there was a need for the film to come back down to earth and to really connect with. Um, viewers on a ground level and we could still keep you know whatever conceptual heights we wanted to go to but we always needed to like maintain that tether so yeah the eye shot was just one small part of that just like you know I, I think it got to a point where it felt like I was dancing around myself as the creator behind this and you know we have obviously that conflict in the community meeting where I get called out but like I think it needed to be more explicit throughout the film. So it was, it was it was at that point that we brought the eye shot in, brought that you know the the director's text out more, speaking to my experience and and just really shattering any illusion that it was anyone but me making this film. And I think the eye shot tries to establish that from the beginning. You're literally looking into my eye and seeing all these blood vessels and the optic nerve, and um, you're seeing like 
like the construction of my gaze and from from the get go. Um, so that was the, the the thinking behind that. Yeah. Well, uh, in that spirit of uh, auto reflection, I'm curious. Can you remember what's your earliest experience with surveillance? Hmm. <laughs> Um, I don't know. I, I don't know if there's anything I can say that won't get me in trouble. <laughs> so, um, I should probably have a better answer for that, but I don't know if there's anything I, I have some very specific feelings about that. I think it's still so early. I haven't really figured out how to speak about that. I, 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 have, I just have a very deep, um, like a very anti-authoritarian slant and feeling very sensitive to hypocrisy and, um, abuses of power. Um, I think like th- this is like a bird's eye view. I th- like I, I grew up with a grandmother who was very like prevalent in my life, uh, who was a Holocaust survivor, and that was kind of like the, like the Genesis story, or I'd say I should say Exodus story of of my family, and and just like very sensitive to abuses of power, and like as I'm growing older, understanding that those abuses of power extend like even in our most intimate spheres and that everyone is implicated. And that's something that I, it comes from a very personal place that, you know, inevitably gets projected outwards. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that's all I can really say about it right now. No. Yeah. I mean that, yeah. Just to, to kind of come in for conclusion, uh, what, what is the origin of the title? I feel like I must've blinked and missed at some point. Oh no, that's, it's not actually in the film. So there's this, um, like 11th century Persian philosopher named uh, Al-Kindi. And he was the person who um, translated a lot of like ancient Greek writings on optics into Persian language. I'm, I don't know the exact dialect. I apologize. Um, yeah, he so he, he translated, but also updated all these thinking and, and, and combined it with um, uh, Islamic uh, life and culture in a really beautiful way. And, and it Islam has so many beautiful light metaphors and and the ways of like, you know, witnessing God through, you know, both within and without of yourself. Like, and uh, yeah, you know, he has this line that I came across very, very, very early. um, And it's related to the extra mission theory of light, which was like also one of the Genesis uh, points of this film, which is that a lot of like uh, Plato had this theory of, 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 of vision called the extra mission theory where um, your light would actually shoot out light rays from your eyeballs. There was a, he called it an ocular fire. There was a fire within your eyeball and the light would exit your eyes and join with the objects of the world. And, and the light was actually the medium through which objects transmitted back to you. So the world was just this projection of yourself. And it's obviously like, you know, scientifically speaking, pretty wrong. Um, but I think poetically, it's just a really beautiful image and, um, you know, goes back to even to the to the weaponization of the gaze as well. Uh, but Al-Kindi has this amazing line where he's like he, something, I'm going to butcher the, the quote, but it's something about how all, all the light everywhere holds the world together. And this idea of light being this thing that enables vision, enables perception, but also like literally holds it together was... Um, was just something was was a central image that I held on to throughout the entire film. Yeah, that is really a beautiful idea. I, I also like the Blake quote: "The uh, as the eye, such the object." It it, it sent me down a Blake yeah. <laughs> a Blake Google thing. I I, I found this paper yeah. where he, he at the time I guess he was 
he just hated the idea that empiricism was going to save us all and he kind of wanted a refuge and in, in, yeah. in the possibilities of madness uh so that was that was really interesting but it it also shows how one does feel cast adrift a little bit because you know where does that leave us how do we how do we chart a path that is you know just yeah i mean i think it's always i think that's what i hope to sort of point to is that like I think the loss of objectivity is like it doesn't mean that there isn't like a truth that we can work towards or something. I think it just has to be seeing seeing truth not as this untouchable thing, but that is is inevitably touched by us. And the way in which we touch it and which we perceive it needs to be part of the equation as well. And that involves a more democratic participation, something that accounts for these power dynamics that, as the film shows, really tries to strategically erase. Have you already shown the movie to the community sh- uh, shown in, in the meeting or, or any other audiences like that? No, we're, we, we were rushing to finish this film up until like a week ago. And um, we have not had a lock picture or a screen or like anything like that until very recently. This is just the beginning. And I hope there's a lot more opportunities for that. I think with Rat Film, we learned how important it is to involve the local community where the film was made in in the events and it's always just like a platform for further further discussion so that's definitely in the works uh it's it's a long year pandemic really obviously uh twisted things a bit but yeah i'm looking forward to doing a lot of baltimore screenings and you know whatever comes out of that comes out of that great thank you so much of course you've been listening to the last thing i saw with your host nicholas rapold If you like what you heard, please consider supporting the podcast by subscribing at repold.substack.com. That's repold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music from their song, Montserrat. Thank you for listening.